Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version with no frills and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player 2 episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces. Now, on to the show. All right, you ready to kick it? Let's do it. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. We are in every high school that ever existed across the John Hughes universe. And in all the characters, it's, it's a, a weird multiverse of movies interacting in the same school with the same person across different characters and different movies. This is where we all wish we went to high school for crying out loud. <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know. Like I, if you were a cool kid, if you were, if you were a loser or like a geek or a nerd or whatever, it probably wasn't a good place. But if you were an average Joe, like that could was, have been fun. I was kind of walking the geek and nerd line. I was, I was, I was more that uh, I was the dude with the trench coat. I, I was wearing trench coats before trench coats were cool, and then before they were illegal. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, but I went to like a Catholic high school, and and that was that was fun. That was fine on its own, but I don't know. It, it's there's so many cliques that are portrayed right across these movies, and I get it because. These movies take these sort of archetypes of people, of cliques, of, of students, you know, and very few people are, quote unquote, the jock. Right. But in these movies, when you're talking about the jock, it's pronounced that person carries all of the stereotypes of a jock. When we're talking a nerd, all the stereotypes of the nerd. Right. Weird science, you know, a fear of women, but desiring women and then using computers to solve their problems and basically getting bullied and beat around by the people around them and their peers. This persistence of stereotypes that flood these stories. And something I want to touch on later is like, I, I kind of wonder if these movies or some of these movies could even be made today. Oh, no. I mean, that that's easy. No, you could not make most or any of these movies the way they were, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I, no I, think, way. I think some of them, yes, but I think some of them have not aged well. I don't think, I mean, I think or maybe they, not so much that they've not aged well, but I just don't know that any studio oh, no. would risk reputation no, no, for no. the way that some of these movies are put out there and portrayed. No, there's no way any of these movies would have been made the exact way we saw them today. That yeah. just wouldn't happen. Like, and there's the part of, you know, I think there's a part of all of us that's like, thank God these movies were made when they were, so they could be made the way they were. And then there's the other part that's like, wow, you really can't say or do those things anymore. But you know, the, yeah. that was, I mean, like it or not, that's the way things were then. You right. know, and I, I don't know. I'm kind of a don't erase history, just learn from it kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, a certain I, guilty pleasure, I think, in watching some of these movies. So uh, not obviously a John Hughes movie, but I'm thinking, oh, bless. 
I get to that moment, I can see it in my head. I can see it in my head. Uh, shit, it's it's from the director of Spaceballs. Oh, was no, the writer director. All right, so you're, you're like thinking the Blazing Saddles in the Thank world. Thank you, and... Blazing Saddles. I can see the picture in my mind, just that the name wasn't coming to mind. Yeah, like Blazing Saddles, I don't know that you could make that today. No, you couldn't. And I'm sure <laughs> Mel Brooks is sitting somewhere right now saying, uh, like, how am I going to write History of the World Part Two right now? I don't know how I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's precisely it. You know, and, how edgy can and, it get? And I hope to God that he doesn't sugarcoat it. I think I want him to do Mel Brooks. I want him to do it the way he does it, and I'm going to go watch it. Yeah, the thing that I liked about his movies is that whenever he did anything, per se, that we might say just couldn't be done today, and we use Blazing Saddles as a really good example, right? Anytime there was anything racially provocative, it was done very much to make fun, deeply make fun of the ridiculousness of racism. Right. He wasn't doing it in a serious way. He, you know, he was doing it in a way that was kind of like, look how stupid these people are. You know, you know, look how how stupid it is to be this way. That if you found your if you're watching this movie and you're going, wait a minute, they're making fun of me. You're on the wrong fucking side of history. And the movie shed such a great light on that in such a humorous way. Humor is such a great way to change minds. Well, and, and, and part of the problem right now is that when you stream that movie, or at least the way I streamed it, I think it was last year. For free? For free. I, I forget. <laughs> Dude, I don't, I don't pay to stream any more than my monthly subscription right now. It was just, uh, anyway, there was a disclaimer before the movie explaining basically what you just said. Mm, right. and, it, and like, this is the problem is that people don't actually do much thinking on their own and actually like under, try to understand what it is they're watching first. And that's why you couldn't make so many of these John Hughes movies right now is because the audience is got, has gotten so stupid. And well, they... I, I watched, I watched blazing saddles with my son and he got very uncomfortable. Oh, very uncomfortable. You can imagine particularly the places, but let's come back because I think, I think we'll actually get into this even a slight bit deeper later in the story, but we're covering chapter 15, right? And we're in the high school and the goal at the moment is to. Are we, are we, we going to just say we're doing 15, 16, 17, or are we just going to, are we going to stop at each chapter? No, I don't see why we should stop. We just boom, burn through. Yeah. It. So, so, okay. So just just as a to, and to your point, we're going to cover all three chapters because all three chapters are are heading towards an end goal. That this these three chapters were chopped into pieces, rather than having a dot dot dot. I believe was just a matter of 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 conveniently slicing. But the fact of the matter is, Sherman, Illinois is one Shermer. experience. Sherman said Sherman didn't. Said I said Sherman. Sherman again, didn't I? <laughs> Sherman, Illinois is one experience. So we're just going to kind of go through all of them because this is a ride through John Hughes. And a majority of this is really a love letter and appreciation to John Hughes with what I feel are just a handful of points that I care to, to, to stop on and highlight. I think that if you're a John Hughes fan that we don't need to necessarily highlight every bit of music, every no, every no. plot point in the book you've read it, you've read it. But there are a few things that I do want to stop on and and talk about that I felt were interesting in in the plot for this. Well, let's get to it. Rocket. So, 
They have to tail Andy, right? Molly Ringwald from Pretty in Pink until a particular moment. That's, of course, when they bump into the dude who's shaking the can to save Ferris, which I, I find it interesting here. I think that's it's a good bit of, of plot and dialogue, good writing, that not everyone in the party loves John Hughes movies. And H hates John Hughes movies. I, I, I have in my notes here, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this one because I feel like anybody who was a worthy enough gunter who would have had to have studied up on these films to the level that they would have had to, to have mm -hmm. gotten to that level would have grown to love these films. Well, we're talking about films that are made in a period of time where their focus audience was white and probably majority masculine. Although, although feminine too, I imagine, because a lot of these plots do revolve around female characters as well. I guess it depends on the movie. Gender not being, I don't think, nearly as as preferential as race. But these are these are white, privileged, and even for the kids that are per se quote unquote not so privileged, such as Breakfast Club, still privileged, right? We're not talking about impoverished, really, not really. Maybe from the wrong side of town per se, but we're talking about like the suburbs versus the rich part of town. Like this is privileged at a level that's still pretty high. It, so it's it's white privilege across the board. And any introduction that I remember of race into these storylines are purely tangential and at best super stereotypical. The, everything about these movies was super stereotypical. Well, sure, sure. I mean, but when, Long Duck Dong. Uh, I was about to go there, dude. Yeah, we were eventually going to hit that. But yeah, like the one Oriental dude that I remember being in these movies <laughs> was Long Duck Dong. And he had that thick Asian accent that was like cho choppy English accent. And it was just so exaggerated. But you're right. Like, uh, you know, the rich, handsome guy is a, is a stereotype. The the geeky nerd is a stereotype. Like th all of the characters are a stereotype, they're, so it's difficult they're, they're to say. Di yeah, they're dialed to like eleven or twelve, like on a ten point scale. Like right. So you know, and it's hard to say that a movie shouldn't like that shouldn't be made because of these horrible racial stereotypes. But then when you step back and go, but all the characters are stereotypes, then it kind of at least puts it into perspective a little. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any of the stereotyping right it just puts things in perspective and like yeah. it's it's kind of like it's kind of like saying i know people are going to probably think of this you know, not necessarily agree with this in whole or, or even in part necessarily but when you're making fun of everybody you know can't we all just kind of laugh about it together and you know just take it for what it yeah. is yeah when you're making fun of everybody nobody's beyond reproach yeah, that's yeah. actually a much more elegant way of putting it. Yeah, so I I totally get you. That's the reason, but in part, why I think these movies are are good of the day. I think it represented like um, a general pitch or attitude or a large market market target market for these kinds of movies. But I get it. Like I get why people would hate these movies because it so absolutely does not speak to them. You know if. Uh, you are another race that's looking at this. You might be offended if you're of a of a level of of if you grew up poor. There are very few movies in the John Hughes atmosphere atmosphere <laughs> in the John Hughes world 
that is going to speak to you. You know, it, it's basically like, you know, first world problems. That, that's like white first world problems as Johnny Hughes movies. It's, yeah, but like, just because you don't necessarily, because you don't identify with, say, the main protagonist or even the extras in the film for that matter. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I, I, was I not allowed to enjoy Christmas movies as a child? Because I don't celebrate Christmas. I didn't have movies that reflected exactly like my heritage. Somehow I survived. I know, granted, I was still looking at white people. <laughs> but, sure. But I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm watching but movies did those movies? But did those movies also portray Jewish people in a, in a stereotypical light? If they portrayed Jewish people, it was usually stere- some, somewhat of a stereotype. And, you know, I mean, if we go back to Mel Brooks, I mean, for crying out loud. <laughs> the, that doesn't count. He is Jewish, dude. I know, but it's so I funny. Mean, the stereotypes that he was that he uses in his films, absolutely hysterical. And yeah. I, I mean, like, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've seen. I, I, I get mean, it. It's, I, I mean, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, oftentimes when, when you know, watching TV, movies, mo- I mean, this was mostly a TV thing, I think less so in movies, but like, you know, the Jewish people, you know, generally older and oftentimes they're survivors. So like, that's their story. And it's like, we're more than, ju- you know, there's more than just survivors, you know, mm-hmm. that are, you know, so like. So like I, I I understand this idea that like you know you're you're seeing you know characters that are more representative of you being portrayed in a way that's hyper stereotypical, right? But I don't I've never let that really kind of relieve myself of the ability to be entertained. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like it's like it's it's almost as if the characters are based on astro- astrological identities, right? You know, you pull out your Aries and your Gemini and your Libra, et cetera, et cetera. These sort of personality types, if you will. And in and of itself, it is uh, stereotypical. But when you cast them in a story, um, it actually adds to telling the story because it's not fuzzy at all as to where each character stands. Not at all. But but let's move on. Yeah, let's, move let's on. actually talk about the book. Yeah, let's fucking talk about the book. So H hates it. <laughs> <laughs> for reasons that we've discussed that we understand, but, but from a, a narrative perspective, like it's good to cover like all of your audience's bases because we already got one person who loves it. Right. We know that Artie loves Schumer, Illinois. Shermer. Did, did I say Schumer? <laughs> First of a Sherman. Now it's Schumer. Schumer. I think you need to go. You need to get in your DeLorean, go back to the 80s, and just like study up or something. (laughs) I've got the word on my screen. Anyways, (laughs) that makes it worse, dude. (laughs) But, but, you know, you've, if you're reading the book, you've got to be able to relate, right? Somebody's going to know something about it. Someone's not going to know something about it. Somebody's got to hate it. Someone's got to love it. I know, but like they were all supposed to be scholars on these films. Doesn't mean they have to like it, just means they have to know it. And that could be, I mean, obviously H hates it for a reason. But we, we, and I guess what bothers me is like, it's a continuity thing is that there was never a hint of that hate in the first book. Not even a hint. Yeah, but there really wasn't much pondering on 
John Hughes in the book, it wasn't so pivotal. Like there weren't chapters totally bent around it. Sure. I and mean, we didn't go to, you know, this particular world. But... And it wasn't unusual for them to have their differences. Andorians aside. Andorians aside. And extreme differences at that. So, I mean, I, I think I, I know where you're headed with this, and it's a it's a broader point I'd love to get to, I think, maybe after we kind of wrapped up the chapters, I think. Fair enough. Right. So I find it interesting is that this is all described as as Schumer. Schirmer. Schirmer. Oh, that, that, I spelled that word wrong. Schirmer is set up like a huge distraction. And I, and I totally get that because you've got the same actors portraying different characters across different movies. And then at any given moment, a schoolroom might be portraying one movie, Bueller, oh, man. while that... as across the hall, it might be portraying something completely different. I think I, you know, I think I'd have so much fun here, and and they're all like cross lines. It's it's an interesting idea. Like I'm really hoping that VR moves into that realm where you're not just mimicking one movie, you're taking an entire ecosystem of movies and melding them into one experience where the lines cross. Like this set of chapters portrays it. I really kind of dig that. Uh, and I hope that people get clever enough to figure out how to do that in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that this was this laid out a pretty interesting example of what could be, and what I hope will be, because I think it would be really interesting for this hodgepodge mishmash of these films and how they interact, and and apparently, you know, as 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 is alluded to, it's not just like something that's on repeat. Like there is some vari variability to it. Yeah, like, oh, sometimes the, these characters go this way, and sometimes they go to this party. But usually it's only after midnight or whatever like that, the details There's work. a general path, but there's yeah. some variability in the moment and the interactions. Like, the, like to me, that, that shows a cleverness. And I think that would make that world very interesting and exciting. And, right. and, and an excellent tribute to the filmmaker. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to see maybe some of Steven Spielberg's stuff get intertwined into the same world. You know, if we get to Back to the Future, just, you know, down the street from the neighborhood that E.T. happened in or some shit like yeah. that. What I, what I do want to make sure that is mentioned is that I really appreciated that it, at the very least, portrayed, like, if, like, they, I forget who it was that looked into the room, but it portrayed a scene that was only, like, alluded to in breakfast club but we never actually saw and it was the simulation that shows brian making the elephant lamp that doesn't turn on no like, like you were able to watch that <laughs> like how cool right. is that like it's mentioned in a scene it's alluded to like you said but then you can see it happening in one of the shops yeah. in one of the rooms I mean, how amazing yeah. is that like i don't know if maybe there is like like Maybe there was. There's definitely not footage of this, like on the cutting room floor, because like it wouldn't it wouldn't have fit with the movie. Like right. they they didn't do flashbacks or anything like that. But like to to be able to like peek into a room and see it, oh, that's that's fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, it, it, when we talk about VR AR, we know that that Facebook's Meta is wanting to <laughs> take to jump into that realm, and they're developing. They've created development tools where you can go and start creating the worlds that you want. Uh, 
and I've looked at these editing tools. First off, I'm not really hip to this whole idea of being uh, an apparition from the waist down, like no legs. It's just oh, it's just waist to head with, with arms oh. dragging. That's what it looks like. It looks ridiculous. I feel like we've talked about that as like like wasn't that was that in this book where I don't know. Oh but, God, but something I, was know, like that where it was like this a lot of people were thing. A lot of people were concerned that I, at least I've read in a number of online forums that this metaverse, this web, I guess, 3.0 is being snatched up, grabbed by uh, the most powerful companies and that Facebook is on the leading edge of that. And then I go and take a look at the tools they're using for building these environments. And I'm like, this is dumb. Yeah. This is nothing. I have, I have no worry at all that that is going to be the dominant force in this sort of realm. I think it will leave people unsatisfied. I think it, it, it'll either have to grow, it'll be forced to change. I just don't see the way that they're designing it to be any threat to this sort of vision. But back to the high school we go. Yeah. So Talk about distractions. We talk about recasting the foul. And what we come to find out is Philip E. Dale also known as Ducky, also known as the Duck Man, is believed to be controversial and divisive. And I think that what they're really getting at here, and they do get into detail, is the fact that there's a number of people who wished that, well, yeah, that's exactly it. The Ducky had ended up with Andy. And then there are a lot of people, evidently, who, I mean, you read through, you read through this, and this is a whole different perspective, which is this you know, idea that that Ducky was a parasite, that he was an annoyance, that he was embarrassing to Andy. Well, he was. In a playful sort of way, almost in a brother-sister sort of way, you know, in a, in a poking and prodding. You know, when you're close to somebody, you know, and you're giving that person shit, it's it's a, almost a means of, of, you know, friendship camaraderie, right? Pestering. I mean, I mean, it would be different if I mean these these two people are friends. Yeah, he's embarrassing, but that's part of the fun for him, and probably part of the fun in the relationship for her. And this idea that I just had this feeling that it was very much like two really close friends that were able to give each other shit. She's constantly sort of batting him away and batting him down and kind of insulting him, and he's kind of pushing back. It's like two balls bouncing against each other aggressively. I mean, in playfully though. To me, like I feel like you had this type of relationship amongst, you know, I, I think you could find this at any school, multiple sure. times, like that kind of, like, I, I don't, like I, I think I first I watched that movie, gosh, a few a couple of years ago for the first time. I know it was mm -hmm. pathetic, and I just kind of, like I watching it, and it's been a few years since the eighties, and I didn't go to high school in the 80s i was in high school in the 90s but to me it's like it didn't strike me as anything i get it didn't i didn't find it jarring because i like i feel like i've seen similar or the exact same behavior in other friend groups all the time yeah yeah you had that you had that one quirky person that would say weird shit they never meant it they never meant it you know, uh, that whole line of, you know, hey, I could schedule you two ladies to get pregnant by next year. You know, it's kind of like, 
what a weird fucked up thing to say to somebody, but he knows what the response is going to be. Well, they know what their response to him is going to be. You know, I've, I've seen this sort of thing. So I, my fear here is that I'm coming at it from a very male heavy perspective, having known people that were kind of like Ducky and, and thinking myself, man, she should, you know, get with Ducky because there's below all of this sort of quasi weird teasing brother sister kind of interaction is some sincere feelings between the two for each other, but that doesn't really cross the line. And in the movie doesn't really tease that line either. Yeah. I, I don't remember ever feeling that either that like there, like, I don't think I felt like there were lines being crossed. I feel like they, everybody's kind of like knew that's how they interacted and it was, fine and like you know they rolled their eyes or whatever but like that's what you do with like your friends and if yeah. she didn't want him around she could have made that very clear oh yeah yeah i mean it, if we were to relate that to a relationship today you know it, it just felt like there were certain things there are certain things that you can do around and with other people that you are close to wherein you know their boundaries wherein you know their buttons and wherein they know that you know their buttons because they've given those buttons over and there's an interplay with friends that are really close. And this movie kind of hit that place of, you know, what happens with two people that are that close of friends, you know, like Uber friend zone where one wants to go beyond, but is a bit awkward and a little bit embarrassed because of his social standing and, you know, you know, the wealth of his family, if you will. It, it was kind of a, an interesting underlying tease. And then there was this, you know, way that he dealt with it socially. I, I don't know, not to get too deep into that, but I yeah. guess that just there was that I, I didn't actually perceive that as being a, his behavior as being particularly bad around her until I read this chapter and got this perspective that was written out for Artie, which was that he was horrible, that Blaine was worse, but that he was horrible. I, Which, I mean, I mean, yes, he was horrible, but like you know, everybody you know loves someone who's horrible. You know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah, like you, like you have that friend who's like who's like I know to some people I'm probably that asshole friend because all I do is like mess around and like make fun of them and like the and the trouble is if they if they don't lean into it then they're gonna end up feeling like oh, why are you being so mean to me? You know, but like you know. It, and you pick up on that. That's just, you know, emotional intelligence. You go, oh, shit, they, they took it in a way I didn't intend it to be. I'm just fucking around, right? Or something along those lines. Like, And, and again, you don't, you don't ever want to discount how somebody feels. But again, it, if, if you're friends with someone for a particularly long period of time, there's a rapport that exactly. tends to be a little bit more abrasive. Like with your brothers and sisters, you know, there are things you might say to your brothers and sisters that you wouldn't say to anyone else because it's rude because you don't know them well enough because, or vice versa yeah or vice versa so anyhow i just I, again not to go too deep i just i felt like like that was a very new perspective i almost said strange perspective but it was interesting perspective well um, yeah i mean like I, I mean we all know that like you know we have these you know long found you know or long held beliefs about like how things are perceived by others and then those you hear their perspective and realize like, wow, I was totally off on that. Yeah. And that yeah. happens. Yeah. And, and, and that's usually where you, where you assume a depth of friendship that doesn't exist or isn't there yet. And you've, you've crossed the line, you know, it's like when you punch that sh person lovingly in the shoulder and they fucking look at you like, don't ever touch me again. 
And you're like, oh, I thought we were at that place where I could punch you in the shoulder. That yeah. was cool. Yeah. Not hard, just, you know. Remember that one time I punched you in the shoulder before you told me I couldn't do that? That was cool. <laughs> yeah. So um, on the subject of Pretty and Pink, and because we kind of get into the backstory of uh, the um, why John Hughes ended up making Some Kind of Wonderful. Right. And in that movie, which I, I saw, I know I've seen in the last year because it, it's been on the list for a long time. And I'd, I watched that film knowing that it was basically his opportunity to do the movie with the ending that he wanted. And I right. did not like the ending. <laughs> what, the ending that he wanted? I, no, I did not. I was like... It, oh, the it, ending that she, gets, that she hooks up with Blaine. No, no, no. I'm talking about oh, some, kind of some kind of wonderful. It was when <clears throat> Eric Stoltz's character and I guess, gosh, I forget what her name was in the movie. I don't, I don't remember the movie. Anyhow, I don't think I've seen it. Oh, I definitely know. I've not, I've not seen some kind of wonderful. Okay. No. Well, think about pretty in pink. Okay. But instead of ending up with Blaine, ending up with, you know, the ducky person. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. I, I mean, I, I mean, I mean it, the the characters are portrayed very differently and not quite as annoying as as Ducky was. Yeah, but it was that kind of thing where Eric Stoltz, um, his name in the movie is is Keith, and he's he's got this thing for Leah Thompson, mm-hmm. and and who yeah, didn't? And, and it, I mean, oh my God, yeah, I wouldn't then. And you know, he spends the whole movie trying to get her. And mm-hmm. his friend, played by IMDb, don't fail me now. Is this the one where they make a bet? No. Mary Stuart Masterson. She plays his friend. Her name is Watts, which I guess is her last name. Okay. And throughout the whole movie, like you know, like they're like friends. They're the they have that kind of almost like they're close, like a brother and sister would be. But like there is kind of these hints of sexual tension or whatever, and the whole movie she's watching him chase after Leah Thompson's character, and then I mean I guess spoiler alert you know he ends up choosing the friend of his not Leah Thompson. I I see. And I just felt like it was so forced and not like it it didn't make sense to me. Yeah, I always wonder what would it have been like if the movie played out just a little bit longer and more subtler moments that were dropped to the cutting room floor were kept in, how that would have changed the flavor of the movie. But I get you. But back to the hallways. Yeah. Of of Shermer. We keep getting Yeah, Shermer, you got it. Shermer High School. We're chasing after Ducky. And just as Molly Ringwald's character, Andy, takes off the other direction and Ducky starts to propose other women. Artie slices off his head. (laughs) Okay. All right. First off, I don't have a problem with this per se. Maybe this is just the way the game is played in other places, but how did that make sense? How did killing one of the characters I get that we've got to recast, but there are a ton of characters that are are cast from different movies. Like, I mean, how many Molly Ringwolds are there walking around the school, right? Why would you need to kill one to replace that one with another? 
you see what I'm kind of getting at there? I mean, I mean, like the, they needed his clothing, I guess. So, I like, guess. I, I guess you have to kill him so that it's not a different crime. Well, this is where we get into that weird place of storytelling, right? Like, you know, you need to get to a place where this other character, where where Robert Downey Jr.'s character, it, it takes the place of Ducky. So, how do you quickly? Uh, eliminate or move that character out of the way because otherwise the other ducky would show up, right? Or how do you get the clothing? But how do you come to the conclusion that the clothing is what you need? Well, I, th this is my inherent problem with this particular challenge or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's, it's one of those, you know, uh, just take my word for it. Uh, yeah. I got to kill him and grab his clothes. And it's kind of like, but. How do you know? How do you know that the, that's? The, the, I, I mean, there's I, no fucking clue that says you know. I, you know, I, I have a whole shop. bunch of notes on this whole very subject that the, this particular challenge seems so overly complicated it would be impossible because yeah, like it, how would you fucking accurately guess of all the things you could possibly do? How do we know that it isn't just tying up Ducky, right? Well, we're knocking him out and not taking his clothes. How would we? How how would they know to take the in a world with teen unlimited variables to, to play a game? How would you know to but, kill the person and take their clothes, and that the clothes would be the thing that would make the other person that character? But like the the the, the whole this 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 whole thing is just so very complicated and not well, it's, very... It's three chapters in the same place. It, technically four. It, it is unlike the any of the challenges in the first book where you have to basically move six, you know, every single chess piece on the board in a specific way to make it work. There's nothing in my mind that went, you got to kill Ducky and take his clothes in order to make this work. Like I knew what, what the direction that this was going to go in. Cause I've, I understand the history behind this. You know, my wife is, you know, huge eighties aficionado and she knew this shit. Right. And we'd had this discussion about this movie where she'd read books from a number of actors uh, that had played in these movies. So she had the down low here. We had numerous discussions. I knew where this was going to an extent. I knew that Robert Downey Jr.'s character would have to end up being that that the foul that would be recast. Mm -hmm. At no point did I even imagine that that what would need to happen would be to kill another character in broad daylight and take its clothing well, as the key to the next part. And, and then the whole thing about trying to get the script felt even more out of this world. And At least there was a hint there. Like the character saying, "You, I can't go any further. I don't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to do. You know, uh, at least that was a hint. That at least there was a hint, which they only had the answer to because they even that he knew that the author, ha he saw John Hughes in the simulation, therefore knew that he could probably get the the script that he needed. You know what I mean? Like it just, it just seemed like it was almost like t too difficult to be uh, too difficult. And also yet too perfectly executed to be plausible. 
You know, like yeah, it's it's just like, it's the, too... like they, they have a time limit. They can't dink around. Meanwhile, Artemis is like, oh, I'll tell you about it later. You know, I, I we'll get to that. Just 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 trust me. Trust me. Like d- don't I've killed him so many times before. You know, even even a, a even something along the lines of like, oh, I've killed a lot of these characters. I know exactly how this works. Right, or I've I've killed Ducky so many times. You don't know, and 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 that's the and that brings up the other point. Thank God she's been living on this planet so long, doing all these challenges, so she knows exactly what to do. It's not like she's a a co-owner in the the largest company on the planet and has all this time to do all that. Oh no, 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 no. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I don't want I don't want to get too critical about the book in general. It's just that when we get to a place like this, I scratch my head and think. Uh, how did we get here? I I think I feel like in the amount yeah. of time that it took them to do all this, it would have been impo- It would have been it, it's it's slightly impossible. But I feel like they probably could have got there eventually with more time. I, I, yeah, I, th- I think it's the timing that just kind of it it, it irks me a little bit. Just like that. And like they're they're dinking around. They have like every second is precious. And they're like, oh well, I'll, I'll tell you. In a, uh, uh, we'll get to that later. I'll, I'll tell you about all that later. It's like, you know, did, you know like it just seems like the 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 urgency is not really set in on them in this. I don't know to an extent. I mean, I I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's just. It was just that plot point that I was kind of like, "How the fuck did we get here? How did how did what hint even even made it like that's a dramatic thing to do, you know, kill one of the characters at the school in broad daylight? I mean, it's already been noted well, that I, there's a police force in town. I suppose that they could have taken off his shoes, his tie, his vest, and th- stuffed him in a locker, but I guess that's yeah. that's not necessarily permanent. But another thing is. He could have respawned. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, even then, how would you know that the clothes are the key to this? How do well, you? Know? Yeah, it's. I mean, There's like no that. Hint. You know, it wasn't like a situation where the riddle was like you have to redress. You know, you have to redress the foul or some shit. There's nothing. Yeah, nothing about costumes or anything like that. You know, like why couldn't it have just been his hat or his shoes or his tie or whatever? Like I'm sure you didn't take off his underwear, but like that could have like. Well, you missed the underwear. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, it was a real shot in the dark. Yeah, I was kind of lost there. And I mean, I didn't stumble too hard on that, but I just thought it was kind of a, it's just one of those little bumps that's kind of like, it. It. how would she know to do this? Like, I know we're headed in this direction. I get it. But how is that hinted at anywhere that the solution is to kill one of the characters and steal his clothes midday? Nowhere. Yeah, it, like it, there, there's a there's a lot of leaps. Yeah, there are, and and you mentioned the bit at the end where they have to go back and get the the script. Like at least there was at least a bit, a bit of a hint there. And hell, who's to say that you really needed the clothing in order to give them a script and say now you are this character? I uh, yeah, I know. I see where I'm going with that, right? Yeah, although the only hint that that was actually. W- worth doing was that there was a very flare moment where he turned into the character he just didn't know what to do and say and it's it's a lot of it's a lot of moving around and like, it was a bit of a jump and, and of course you know the stealing of weed 
in and order I, to yeah, get them I, to as like big, she she knew sex or drugs would get them to do whatever that she well, wanted them to do. So that that kind of made sense given it was kind of like if you if you knew how to manipulate that character in that world that you know, maybe you would need to do that to get them to do what you want them to do. It, it it all just seemed to fit a little too perfectly. Like, oh, here's what you got to do. Like, it, you know, and I just feel like this is, it, it it feels like you're, you know, you're at a concert and the song is playing and each instrument is going through their own solo one after the other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, first we had, you know, you know, we had, Shoto basically using his expertise on the Sega Ninja and going through that. And now we're on Artemis. Right. And right. This is, this is her realm. I, I get that. Totally get that. And it's funny you should mention that because we do get to this place, like up till now, everybody's been together, but it felt like halfway through, went and feel like halfway through the experience, uh, it gets to a point where H is like, you know, fuck these needle drops fuck 80s music you know yeah. it's like fuck, screw everything that has to do with this and then conveniently gets his phone call gets phone call right and decides to bail out and then so does shoto so then that's two people out of the scene that leaves this sort of series of moments now these sort of series of moments that really didn't require shoto and h being out of the scene but these moments where they have like these back and forth looks and these sort of, you know, endearing moments where they get to reconnect on a, on a very subtle level, uh, which is cool because they get you got to kind of wire that in. But it felt like, you know, halfway through this whole Shermer, Shermer, Illinois narrative that, you know, that Ernest was kind of like, we don't really need these. These guys are going to be in the way. Let's give them an excuse to bail for a moment. And then I, we can I, use I, that opportunity to focus in on the two characters and their relationship. I, I hadn't thought about that as like a trimming the fat out of the scene mm-hmm. type thing. But now that you mentioned it, I'm like, yep, that's exactly what he was doing there. It's like, I mean, and again, the logic, logic is you've got, you've got no time. Then why not send them to the next thing? Why not send them in a direction that they are more suited to deal with? Right. Why is it that they they need to take some phone calls and waste time in the midst of trying to save themselves and everyone else? Yeah, like maybe they could have just restrained Ducky and they wouldn't have to kill him. Yeah. Or, you know, this idea of you go into this house, I'll go to the other house. And if either one of us see Ian and what's his face, hold him down. Yeah. Like like, they could have had purpose, but. What is one person going to do to take down two people? Of course, you know, already had fucking guns. So that'll do it to at least hold them in place. But it's again, I'm not harping. I'm not bitching. I just felt like the narrative for Shermer, Illinois was kind of wobbly. Yeah. A little, a little uneven, a little weirdly balanced. And, uh, and again, I don't want to get too crazy mid on the story, but it just kind of felt like we're in other parts of the story and ready player one and two ready player one. It felt like I was a part of the guessing. I was a part of the unfolding, right? Like there wasn't a point in Ready Player One where something was revealed. And and I'm kind of like, oh, everything should have pointed to that. I should have gotten that. You know, that was the fun love of the first story. Here it's kind of like you killed Ducky and took his clothes. 
And you won't even tell me why? Or... That was nowhere, nowhere had we been led to think that that was what needed to be done. It was just one person's kind of like, hold on, I got this. Chop. And then and then we move forward, and then two characters decide to split while the other two try to, you know, tackle the situation. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and what's weird is that, like, they all go, and they're dragged along, and then... Through all, you know, after all of that, all the warnings to not touch anything, don't do anything, you know, mm-hmm. the, the typical Doc Brown warning about, you know, messing with the past or the all future, right. you know, after all that, after all that, she says, hey, you know, you can, guys can go. We don't, you, we don't need you here for this. Go, go, go make your phone calls. So right. it, was, it was odd. It was a little unbalanced. Yeah. A little wobbly for a story. And again, I don't want to trounce on it because for those that really love John Hughes, this is again a love letter to those people. But we got to that place where is we're at the though? dance. I think so. They absolutely loved uh, it. They mention all the people, all, they, all the houses, do, but, all the but, names. Um, but I think I do have a broader point I do want to get to later. Though. Oh, okay. Okay. So let's see if we can um, make our way through the rest of this section of the book. Gotcha. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now let's get to the good part. So where are we? So <laughs> they, they, they grab the pot, they grab Ian, they grab the Rolls Royce after discussing at length about potentially stealing a Ferrari, which is where we realize that this town has repercussions. It has a police station that takes a half an hour to get out of. Right, which is why they couldn't go and steal Ferris Bueller's friend's Ferrari. Cameron's father's Ferrari. Cameron's father's Ferrari. And and I will say that I do appreciate that you can't steal it unless it's daytime with Cameron's help. Yeah, like like there's parameters to make that happen because he's a top-of-the-line security system. That's mentioned in the movie. So, you know, they they get in the car, they take off, and they, they get to the dance. What is it? Shermer Hotel? Maybe. Parents are in Europe. Parents are in Europe. And here's, while you're looking that up, well, you know, everybody's parents is in Europe, right? <laughs> yeah. Except for me. This is this is how I know where I fall into the John Hughes level of, of oh. economic plateaus, is that I've never taken a vacation to Europe and left my kids at home. I know what side of the tracks I would be living on. Oh, yeah. Not the but one where your parents fact, went to Europe and left you at the house and, you know, the Ferrari. Yeah. When you look at a lot of the roles that Robert Downey Jr. had in the past, it's interesting how sort of a wacky life, you know, or a role kind of he played into that. And you kind of wonder, 
with a number of actors, if the roles that they frequently choose or prefer are ones that speak to a nature about themselves that they're hiding, but that that the role itself would allow them to express, right? And Robert Downey, a lot of Robert Downey Jr.'s characters were, let's face it, it seemed like, you know, involved, very sort of chaotic and involved in drugs. So here we have a situation where his character is bribed with weed. You know, Weird Science 1985, 12 years later, he's charged with heroin, cocaine, firing Magnum handgun while speeding down the Sunset Boulevard and thrown in jail to, to later be released from from his sentence. And now we have, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. that we all know and love that's Iron Man, right? And, and a handful of other films that he's been in. And he's just been fabulous since he got out of jail, I guess is the best way to put it. So it's just kind of interesting how, how you know, it, some of the roles really fit to maybe who he was and, and in real life. I mean, I think a lot, <laughs> I'm sure he, there are quite a few people who went down similar paths well yeah like uh that's just the way the industry was well okay sure i mean as far as like drugs and stuff are concerned yeah i get you fine but not everybody ends Got up getting caught. thrown in jail for heroin and cocaine and firing off a gun while speeding down down a popular road you know that doesn't happen to everyone yep. everyone in that industry doesn't end up there let me just put it that way no, they say that for the special ones. But we, you know, when we look at like, oh shit, well, what was his name? Gotta help me out here. Yeah, I know. Like, I should really just be able to tell you movies. He was in Seven. No. Keep going, Morgan though. Morgan Freeman? No. Oh, just one, I know. Just one more, Kevin one more Spacey. Dude. Kevin Spacey. When you take a look at some of the movies Kevin Spacey's been in, when you take a look at the, the show that he was in, like... He's played some sexually shady characters, right? Where was the one where he's like the father that falls in love with his daughter's uh, American friend? Beauty. Oh, oh, American Beauty. That's some that's some shit on the edge. Kind of like you look back and you take a look at the the filmography and of the things that he's chosen to be in. And uh, Frank Underwood, for example, if you ever watched uh, House of Cards, before. House of Cards, I watched that and stopped when it got bad. I mean, you just you just got to kind of wonder if an actor doesn't go, you know, that speaks to a deeper part of me. Or what was the one where he plays the, the rich dude that ends up murdering the young guy and goes to court? It was based in South Carolina in the Garden of Good and Evil. There we go. I haven't seen it. I, you just got to wonder if sometimes the role isn't chosen by the actor because it reflects a side of them that they want to exercise. And and again, coming back to Robert Downey Jr., you saw a, a lot of movies involving drugs before 1995 or 1997. And then, you know, coming out, a different person, different set of roles. Well, I mean, to be fair, I'm not sure there's going to be that many people, you know, there's a certain age where I think you stop portraying that kind of person. I Maybe. Think I think there's going to be a few people out there right now that are going to ignore those boundaries. Like I think of more than a few, but I think of that generation of actors, there was a point where it's like, all right, you're done playing that kind of role. You've graduated to playing deeper roles, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it's something to do with, you know, an awakening, you know, type thing. Or, you know, or I'm really just, 
roles that speak to the the deeper, darker fantasies of a person. That when somebody throws something in front of you, you're like, I can relate to that. I can so, do that. Uh, I well, want to do that. Is it that, or is playing those characters ingrained that into them when that's where and that's where they picked up those tendencies? Ah. Uh-huh. I don't know. Some people get really deep into their characters. Well, like, was it, the, is it method acting? Is yeah. that what it is when people like, like, engross themselves into the character and like, kind of, like, did you ever, did you ever see that documentary? I think it was called like Being Andy or something like that. The uh, yeah, with Jim Carrey. Yeah, and then they and then that, years that shit later, was fucked up. Years later, well, right. So I, I can't remember the name of the movie, but the documentary that came after came years later. They didn't want to release it until years later because it would portray him as being a complete asshole. And I guess he was far enough, he being Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was far enough in his career that people were kind of like, yeah, yeah, we know he's kind of an asshole. So it's not going to hurt his career any more than it's already been hurt. But uh, oh my God, yeah, super fucked up. Super fucked up. Yeah. It, maybe all these actors are really just very mentally fragile. Yeah, I don't know. But moving on, moving yeah. on. We find out that Robert Downey Jr. can't go to the dance. And there is at least a little bit of a hint there that, that there needs to be more than just the clothing, which sends them back to John Hughes' house. So here, there's something I missed here. Oh, because us. they don't go to John Hughes' house. They go to the Johnson's house, right? Yeah, Mrs. But... Johnson, which is like the mother of... Of, of Anthony Michael Hall's character. Anthony Brett's Michael story. Hall's character. Right, right. And and she says, well, we're not here to sell anything, right? And that's when she transforms into Nancy Hughes. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. I must have missed something. Okay, so let me tell where you. Was, where was the logic that so, brought them to that house? Okay, so in the beginning, like it was in the previ- previous chapter when they were just getting to Shermer. Right. He sees all the the homes lined up and you see all the fathers from the you know, all the movies come out and get the newspaper, whatever. So you see John Hughes come out because he played, like he dropped off Brian. No, he picked up, tripped, dropped off. I picked up Brian from school in the movie. He was the extra, I believe. Oh, I see. Okay. So as they're going down the street, they see the fathers come out of the house. They see John Hughes as one of the fathers. They recognize the house as the Johnson's house. Well, no, they don't they recognize know. the house as the Johnson house. They recognize the fact that, well, I mean, I think it was even said, we could probably look this up, but he was like, why, like, like, who was that? And he's like, oh, wait a minute. He played a, basically a non-speaking role in the movie. Mm-hmm. Who, and I think he picked up Brian at the end of the movie. You see him in the car picking him up and it's John Hughes picking him up. Got it. Okay. So, All right. So, I just I miss where that connection was. Yeah. Dude. So, no, so yeah. So then that's why they're like, okay, well, John Hughes is playing is Brian Johnson's father. John uh, Hughes as a character is at this location, and that if we're going to find exactly. him anywhere, this is probably it. Exactly. And I thought that the whole opening up there, where you know he's kind of like, already I've been expecting you. You know, big hug. Yeah. Why is he expecting her? I was like, that's a hell of a. A thing for an NPC, but you know, maybe somebody who's spent a lot of time in that realm would the system would be programmed to better recognize her. The the only thing I think of is that maybe she was the first one to walk in the door, or she like knocked on the door and like, oh, I've been expecting you. Insert avatar name here. Sure, sure. 
And that, then we've that, got that, that whole thing. I, I I was scratching my head at that. Like, why are you expecting Artemis? Like, she's not the heir. Right. Right. And then there is that whole after they do get the 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 script that they're after, which is weird because it's kind of like, well, what script would you like to look at? First off, it, it's weird because she doesn't say anything alluding to at all that she's after a script. She just says, look, I'm not here to sell you anything. And that's when the lady transforms into Nancy Hughes. And that's when it kind of sets off into this path. Oh, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for this script to my movie. Which script would you like? And she says, well, your favorite. And first off, I'm kind of like, has anything really happened to truly indicate that the artificial intelligence here would assume that this is what she's looking for? Like anybody could walk up, have walked up to the door, knocked on it and said, I'm not here to sell you anything. And that it all of a sudden it would be transformation. Okay. He's upstairs. Like, like anybody could have, anybody could have gone through that accidentally is what I'm getting at. Well, it probably, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the selling them anything. She she does say, my name is Artemis. This is my friend Parzival. We're here to speak with your husband about our mutual friend, Ducky, Philip F. Dale. Okay. So All right. Like, well, I, I guess. I, 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 there, I'm one. I mean, I guess. Right. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. Is that the only trigger or do they need to have killed Ducky first? You know, like. <laughs> it wasn't really a mutual friend if you cut his head off. There's so many questions. It's it's so weird. So I, yeah. So and then we've got the keyboard that's that's hanging by. The, I think it's really interesting because they they specify a particular kind of keyboard that would have gone to a computer was the one that was used in Weird Science. And I like the fact that they that they reflected back on the fact that the computer was gone and the keyboard was gone, but that the memory unit wasn't. And that's very kind of to point for the technology of the day is you usually had like a plug-in hard drivey thing on the side for for computers in that time it would be it would have been a module uh, which sounds unusual in this day and age but like if you just used a computer and you programmed something if you didn't have a memory module like a tape deck plugged into the side to store what you had done when you shut the computer off everything you'd done would be gone boo. gone gone boo not saved there, there was no place to save it so eh, I kind of enjoy, I kind of enjoyed that little piece, but the fact that you know there were missing keys on the keyboard that that it was obviously Kira. Well, Kira was the keys that were missing were it spelled out Kira. Yeah, you know R A I K. You know, just work them around and Kira. You know, obvious. But then realizing that maybe it was Og that that is leaving this message to them. If it's or that somebody is, they assume that maybe Og is trying to leave this breadcrumb trail or this message here so drive back to Sherma hotel robert well, downey jr oh did i miss something i mean like i think the big plot point here is that like they're um they're realizing that they need to go look at the other locations of the shard or they need to f- see if og left other messages so he yeah. so he reaches out to lohengrin i can't remember if i'm pronouncing that right mm-hmm. to Get get the the low five together and basically check out the every instance of Middletown to see if there are any mess weird stuff going on there. Right, the B team, the reaching B team, out to yeah. the B team to see if there's anything in the, in anything where they had gone before that might scream out to them in such a way. Yeah, 
yeah, that is a, a pivotal point because that really begins to intersect the B team. And this was a surprise to me because in previous chapters, when we had talked about this, the low five, I thought would be, would have been put on the down low until an extreme emergency. And that it would have been either by embarrassment or the hubris of, of Parzival not to try to bring them in because that would be admitting that there were certain things that he couldn't do. Right. Mm-hmm. But here he's just kind of like, I got peeps for, I got peeps for that. I'm going to call the, I'm going to call the B team. Right. And, uh, have them come in and and pick up. Here's the thing that I thought rather interesting was that two things. He sends that email out to them. It's a rather long damn email. He's typing all of that with his eyes closed. And it's all spelled perfectly. Yes. <laughs> all spelled perfectly. Like I'm a I'm a good typist, right? It it's I've done it for 30 some odd years and and I I can I I get a pretty, I can get a pretty decent clip. I'm a good typist. I can do all of it blindfolded. I don't know if I could do that much blindfolded. Perfectly anyway. <laughs> Perfectly anyway, but but even more so. And I, I challenge anyone to try having somebody read that out and type it perfectly. Eyes closed. Eyes closed. Well, uh, well actually, but, no. It was more like eyes open, but not looking at it. Was that what he was doing? I thought he had his eyes closed. Because I think that oh, just no, he, did, he closed his eyes because he's afraid that that it's monitoring visually his feed. But the weird part about this is that this is all in the oasis. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't matter what he sees because like there's everything's you can see everything. Everything's happening, right? You know, you're typing, you're sending an email. All of that is going to stream through the same system. And then if one person, if somebody, something is monitoring your feed. Like there isn't an email you could send that couldn't be intercepted. Yeah, that that so, I thought was a weak. Like it, like they just it didn't need. It was just odd. It didn't need to go, go into that detail. It just been like just send the email, dude. I mean, I think like you had to acknowledge the concern, and this is this is him verbally acknowledging the concern. Yeah, it was just kind of like a step back and go. Well, for one thing, that would be difficult to do somewhat, and uh, especially for people who aren't used to typing, right? Because you know that he's been using not... virtual keyboards his, his forever. I suppose, but a majority of the stuff that you're doing is interacting. You're jumping someplace. I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess to an extent. But, anyways, beyond the point of whether or not it can be done easily, uh, and I would challenge anybody to have somebody read off that email and try to type it perfectly. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter that if you're going to take that risk, you're like, you know what. If he can see it, he can see it. Because whatever happened to that assuming that he can do anything and everything and that everywhere is, is you know, not is, is obviously within Halliday's purview. So I thought it was kind of like a, a weird thing to do if you truly believe that Halliday is, you know, all seeing, all knowing, or at least all tapped into that system. But we find that uh, we get back to the dance. We give Robert Downey Jr.'s character, now the duck, the duck man, the script, and he scans over it, and a shower of gold dust poofs, and he does a little wiggle, and then poof, he goes off and dances. And therein, you know, pops the key. They also go to the, you know, Artemis and Parzival also go to the dance floor and have a moment, and then poof, there's the crystal. 
Yeah. I said key, but there's the crystal. And also this memory of Og basically rescuing Kira from her father to take her back to the U.S. to start the business. And, you know, holding that baseball bat to kind of hold him off. Like Shaun of the Dead. Like Shaun of the Dead. It was a cricket bat, first of all. They're in England. Oh, was it a cricket bat? My bad. It's not America. It's England. Well, I mean, okay, fine, cricket bat. And this moment where he identifies his love for Artemis as being similar in feeling to Kira's love for Og. And I kind of like this momentary setup because we already know what's going to happen to Kira. We already know she's going to die. We already know that there is massive what, what, heartbreak what, what, and pain. <laughs> we knew that in the last book. <laughs> no. what, what, what are you getting at? Dude, messing with you. <laughs> so uh, there's this, this connection between him and his feelings for Artemis and Kira and Og. So it's kind Which, of a nice sort of comparison there. It's that, a stretch. That, what that that uh, I'm not saying that that Artemis is going to die. What I'm no, saying no, 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 is, no, no, is no, that... not at all. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that like I think for uh, Parzival to try to equate him and Artemis with again Kira is a stretch. But he does. It says it. I know. I know. I'm saying for him to make that comparison is a stretch. Well, he says that he can feel what she's feeling, and it's the same feelings that he has had for Artemis. Like they're familiar, similar, right? And then, like, that's kind of, it has an interesting tie-in to his investment in getting through all of this shit, other than the fact that his life is in danger, because that's, you know, that's an investment, too. So... Anyways, beyond that point, he has the memory, it comes out of it, and uh, on the crystal is an ornate shield with the stylized math symbols, the coat of arms of Queen Itzalot from the magical kingdom of Itzalot on planet Halcedonia. And it is also a place wherein Parzival has vowed never to return. Oh, no. Queen Itzalot sounds like a character from a Monty Python movie, doesn't it? And it sounds like an education character, right? Because you're like, well, it is a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot to it's a lot to deal with. I know that's why it, it sounds like a lot to deal with. with. That's why I figured, like, oh, the, like when I was listening to this in prep, I'm like, Queen It's a lot, and and, and her I, servant Patsy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who will go on to direct the worst movie ever made? But I like how it kind of leaves off at that, you know, that he vowed never to return because you're like. What? Yeah, this boy's is... got some. Boy's got some baggage. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and you haven't even read it yet, or have you? Well, let's let's talk about that. Because I did take a trip to my father's, and there were no other books to listen to. So yeah, I've read through it. The whole I've been book. The, I've been through the whole book. Oh. We've just, we've just not chatted in a while. And to be quite honest, I'm not sure that I remember everything. I do remember the highlights, though. Welcome to my world. It's been a year since I've read these chapters, so. Oh well, then, then you're fresh at it than I am now. But that's okay. We will we will get through it. And and there are some some obviously some moments that I'm sure that I did not pay attention to as closely that will pop out as we converse through this. So now that we've finished these three chapters, where we were really into 
Shermer. Sherman, right? Yeah, Sherman. How do you have anything in particular that I th- you had alluded to some broader points you wanted to discuss, and maybe we've hit them all, but is there anything in, in particular you wanted to make sure we discussed? Yeah. Let's talk about how that the only thing to make Andy's character fall in love with Ducky is the changing of the actor. Because if Robert Downey Jr. had played the character, he would have been the same Ducky that had hounded her, that had invaded her space, that had embarrassed her. All the qualities that were bitched about of the Ducky character, you know, up until, you know, we switched it out for Robert Downey Jr. And then the chemistry can happen. I find it, I find it frustrating to hear that in a movie where I thought the story should be different, that the story was intended to be different, but what it really came down to was the actors were not good enough to convince the audience of 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 a of a, a chemistry. Acting isn't the fucking dating game. Acting is acting. You're yeah. telling a story, and you've got to have the skills to tell the story right. And the fact that they had more of a brother sister thing going on in their off time is kind of like well, who cares. That wasn't the role. And that the studio comes back and goes, yeah, we don't buy that these two characters would hook up in any way. So rewrite it or get somebody else or something. Well, so I'm going to counter that by saying, and we have an example from these chapters to use. Okay. Eric Stoltz being fired from Back to the Future because he was playing the role too seriously. Yes. And that that is a great point. Sometimes people can't do the job. So uh, Eric Stoltz, and I, and I know what you're getting at. Like I'd seen the documentary Back to the Future, and they showed several clips with Eric Stoltz and how he wanted it to be serious. And the directors were like, no, that is not the role, but he wouldn't take the hint. Or maybe he, that's just not where he felt comfortable playing I, the character. I, yeah, I think that's not like, that wasn't his um, shtick. Yeah. He, he wanted to be more of a serious actor. And, you know. And he was pushing that. And he was pushing that so, into this character. So so it kind of begs the question, like, why, like, could they not, I mean, I don't know, make John Cryer be more what they wanted to be? Or would they say, no, we really want to have John Cryer, so, but, like, that chemistry is not working for us, so we have to change the ending. You know, like. I don't know. And it's, 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 it's not like it's he shitty, was a top shitty. bill, like, character, uh, actor. And not was top like, bill, but I think he had done some things. It's it's it it would be shitty of me to sit here and judge in hindsight the level of skill that those actors had at the age that they were at, right? And at the end of the day, when you're trying to sell a story with the characters you've chosen and it's not working out, you got two choices: you know, replace the characters and reshoot, or you're gonna have to change your story to fit the characters. Probably and in this case, and in this case, he did the latter, right? And I get that. Um, But again, I fall back on the fact that if, and I've not read the alternative script, like maybe there were other bits, parts of of the character that were different. But if it wasn't the case, if it was just the case where it would have been exactly the same, and then we just swapped the two out, and all of a sudden everything was cool and, and it made sense, and then it's kind of like he was still the asshole that people were bitching about. Yeah. You know, it's still Ducky. 
It's just Robert Downey Jr. as Ducky. Yeah, if you stuff a duck into a turkey, you still have a duck in the turkey. You have, you have, a, you have a turducken. You have a turducken. Minus the chicken. Minus but I, I understand I understand what you're coming from. If it if it walks like a ducky and it talks like a ducky, it doesn't matter who it is. It's the duck, you yeah. know, and it's still going to be that same annoying character that people would be arguing that that shouldn't have, well, it, have connected. Maybe, with, uh, maybe this goes to the whole thing. We're like, well, I don't, I don't like it when this guy does this behavior, but I would love it if this guy did behave that way that I wouldn't mind, you know, like the, you know, yeah, I, I like I'm sure if one of the jocks made those comments about it, I couldn't make an arrangements that either of you two pregnant by the holidays. You know, I'm sure the girls would be like, if it were Blaine, I'm sure they'd be like, oh, you're so silly. But when it's Ducky, because he's a bit of a goofball, it's like, ew. Yeah. You know, like, I think there's a little bit of that, maybe. Maybe. Again, there's a lot of stereotypes that are nested into these characters. So the reactions are also sort of stereotypical, which isn't fair. It isn't fair to, to judge people in mass on these sorts of stereotypes, but again, that's that is that is the characters that play these these movies. That's how these that's how these characters are kind of written up. So yeah, I don't know, but it just it, when I read that part where all of a sudden it's Robbie Downey Robert Downey Jr., uh, I was kind of like, yeah, but if people are pissed off about him being an asshole in the past, it shouldn't matter if it's Robert Downey Jr. or not because it's the same fucking material. Yeah, you know. It's, you know, it's kind of goofy like that. But beyond that, though, no, I came out of this chapter feeling like we'd gotten a little bit of closer, you know, that there was a lot of time that was fucking wasted here for sure. Yeah. I felt like they could have they could have I felt like this could have been shortened up quite a bit because, again, there's just a ton of references that's describing the world and the scenes and, and how things are going on and all of these, you know music drops it it's just uh it, it could have been simplified to be much more plausible sounding just be like you know what like don't you know like you hold ducky from coming into the into the the dance and mm-hmm. you drag robert downey jr in here and like that's enough right like it could have been much simpler but i think it just got so convoluted and like just complicated it just and it drug this. It drug this. Drug the story down a smidge. Yeah, they're on a time yeah. limit here. Got things to do. They can come back and play in this land later. Yeah, but I, I get it. Them. Like they're they're trying to solve the puzzle on the fly in progress. Yeah, it's rough. I don't have much else to say though, and I'm trying to remember what happens next. But I, I'll be honest with you, I don't remember exactly what yeah. bridges us from here to to Prince Land. Oh, but God. I can tell you where I'm somewhat lukewarm on Sherman, Illinois. Sherman. I am definitely much colder to Prince Land and uh, the multiple well, chapters. We'll, we'll get to that. But yeah, we'll <laughs> um, get to that. So, can I explain my beef with Shermer? Yeah, I thought you loved this man. I didn't think you I, had well, any beef with Shermer. Well, that's the, that's the thing is that like you know I was so excited to go back to reading these chapters. I'm mm-hmm. like, yes, we have to go back to Shermer and like all these different movies that I'd love to kind of see played out this way and all the little Easter eggs that you could find and all, all the challenges. Like it just got my head kind of excited about it. But then I read it again and I just, I, I, then I remembered how much I stumbled over all the, I guess all the John Hughes hating 
mm-hmm. you know, like a, a, as if like like this was what the, those movies were being made that way with you know because that that's the way movies were made then, right? Like, You're not like, wrong. Like that's it was a style, and and I, I guess the, I, I guess my my ultimate problem is is that the first book was a giant love letter to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And this book, I think, kind of eclipsing at this chapter for me, for sh- you know, for sure. Now that it's kind of coming to a head with the Shermer chapter, chapters, is like a dear John letter. Like, you know, here's why I'm dear breaking John up with Hughes. you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Sort of. Yeah. Like, okay. You know, and and like you know, referencing like how white Shermer is. It's like, of course, it's all white. It's based on movies made in the eighties. That's what they did then, yeah. you know. And you know, all the things that they were complaining about, and you know, the you know, all the the rich white kids and all their parents going to to Europe, which I don't know where that's happening. It didn't happen near me, you know, and you know the issue with with you know the graffiti on bender's locker it's like that's what like it, that was indicative of the time it was that's indicative good, of the time that, that it was, is definitely a reflection of 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 that of the attitudes of that period of time and and, and the like, experiences and like, of people who lived in the suburbs and, and, Sh- and, and and no one's saying that like if you watch this film and enjoy it that you condone any of this behavior you know what i mean like and this just seemed like Klein was trying to dial it back a little bit, you know, huh. and basically, you know, put a few hit points on the eighties and like how, you know, and apologize for it in some way. And, I think it was, he was glamorizing it. I don't have a problem with that. Like it's okay to glamorize what you loved about something, even if it's not perfect, even if it doesn't fit into today's social norms. They're still good movies. They still even strike home for a lot of people today. A number of them do. But there are bits where you look at it and go, I don't know that you could make that today. That yeah, and, and that's true. That's and, true for and, a lot of movies. And and frankly, some of like the great comedians that came out of the sixties and the seventies and the eighties who were, you know, just unbelievable comics, you know could not have made careers today. Yeah. Well, what's funny has changed. And I I still find a lot of these guys funny. Well, and that's cool. I get it. That's where we come from. But, uh, you know, like, but a lot of, for a lot of people, they wouldn't find it necessarily funny. And then that's the risk you take as a comedian. That's the risk you take as uh, anybody who produces any kind of media. Is that you put something... I mean, I'm going to borrow some lines from like, you know, some comedians that, you know, I've been been watching some videos of like comedians talking about things like cancel culture and whatever. It's like comedians are supposed to be edgy, you know, like they're, they're supposed to be shocking and doing, you know, and if, and if you don't like it, don't go to the clubs, you know, like, you know, you can choose who not to see. And you know what? I I also, I don't think that there is a, I, I don't, I don't want to say I don't believe in a necessarily cancel culture. I just believe that it's always been around. I believe that it's just changed in terms. You know, before we were online as nearly as much as we are today, we called it boycotting, right? And that if you didn't like something, you would convince people not to go. You would boycott an event. You would boycott a comedian. You would boycott a store. 
If you didn't like it, that was your equivalent of cancel culture before you had social media researching people and shutting down their their media popularity online. It's always been around, really, and it's it's just had different forms. But I guess the gist here is the power of it is way different now. Well, there's definitely more exposure now, and I think that it's that it's much easier from a social media perspective to to know when something's happening like that because it can hit the news threads pretty quickly, and everyone has access to it. It's not just something that's localized. But uh, we take a look back at uh, the dude who played Kramer. In Seinfeld, mm-hmm. Michael Richards, and he 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 did some shit at a club that did not play out well for him, and that that fucked up his uh, that fucked up his career for the moment. You remember that? Yeah, for the moment, I think probably the more than a moment, <laughs> maybe a decade. <laughs> it, it definitely it definitely shut him down for that for the from that particular career path. So, you know, you just, yeah, you should be edgy, but the the uh, skill of being an entertainer is knowing what entertains and then for sure and, and then pushing that edge. Right. And there's a skill to it. I don't think you should just be edgy for edgy's sake. There's a skill to it. And if you've, if you're off your skill or you misread society's perspective in the moment, yeah, you're going to flub. And people are going to get pissed, and then they're going to be verbal about it, and then you're going to find you're going to have a lot less folks to uh, come out and see you. So I, I don't know. I think it's always been around. I just think yeah. that it's more more prevalent, or at least more powerful in the individual's hands of the people who who are offended. I mean, I I think it was Bill Burr who was commenting on this and basically trying to say that the problem right now is that you have people who aren't even going to, who aren't even seeing these things firsthand. They're watching someone else's video mm-hmm. of what's going on and then just, you know, going online and saying that I can't believe they said this, this isn't right. And then like it goes viral. And then. Well, what, you know, what you're talking about is this, this idea that something's taking out of context, but there are plenty of people who have been nailed for this where it was not taken out of context. Sure. But I get what you're saying. And you get people who just ignorantly are just jumping on a bandwagon of turning their back on somebody because well, someone said they said something. And it's also, I think, there are people out there that are just, that just want to be the person who takes somebody down. And, like, they will go digging into, like, the the Marianas Trench of, their, of someone's past to try to find that thing mm-hmm. that is going to take them down because that's what that's what they get their rocks off with. And well, look, if you're if you feel offended, if you feel like others have been offended, if you feel like you have the ability to not to be a victim but to be empowered to to control your ability to respond, your ability to reflect back onto the individuals who have who've performed a certain degree of injustice, then that's a very empowering thing. And and people some people will take advantage of that. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I, the only way we can tell what is good in media, be it comedians or television or movies, is by people being empowered to provide feedback. Sure. But do, are you the same person you were 40 years ago? I would say 30 years ago. That's, that's kind of a rough. Compa- you compare me to my seven-year-old self? The answer is probably no. So... Yeah, should a person be held accountable for who they were last year, two years ago, five years ago? 
No. No, and, I, I mean, and, and, and this they would have thing. already been they would have already been held accountable for that. If you're trying to dig into a person's past that that that's all well and good. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, people might grow up racist. They might grow up sexist. They might grow up homophobic without actually realizing the shit they're saying is homophobic and that, or and, even realizing that they are and that you can grow and adjust and change. Exactly. And that doesn't change. <laughs> I mean, like that doesn't make you a bad person in this and. I guess my parallel with this is the movies that were being made 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, like that doesn't, I mean, yes, the, like they couldn't be made today. Right. Yeah. But that, yeah, that shouldn't ruin the good about those movies. Well, and I think that's the difference, right? Could you make them today? No, it wouldn't entertain people the same way today. And it may not entertain them at all. But when they were made, and based on our history and our remembering of what was entertaining, that's also part of the nostalgia, right? That that you remember what was entertaining about those movies. So again, I go back to Blazing Saddles because it's just vehemently the most potentially offensive, yet forcefully provoking, humorously provoking, thought-provoking movie and commentary on the idiocy of racism. And... Uh, could you make that today? Definitely not. But no. you and I have been around long enough to remember a time when you could make that movie and you could reflect on the idiocy of racism in any period of time and do it in a movie well without it being crazy offensive. Like you can still do that today, but it ends up looking like Django Unchained, which but is it. A in intended and you know, nobody is getting pinned there because everyone knows what that movie was intended to be. It's, it was intended to stir you and and do what, what Quentin Tarantino does, which is basically make Art Nouveau revenge porn, right? And that's yeah. about the only way you could get away with showing racism today that heavily in a movie. If it was in a comedy, though, probably not. Not anymore. But you and I have been around long enough to remember the, how that was entertaining and and that it was and why it was. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, I get you. I, I mean, I guess I just long for the days where people actually like use the, where we were a little more analytical and tried to look like beyond kind of the first page of something, like read beyond the headlines sure. and, you know, really understand the messaging. And, you know, it's also a bit of a, you know, if, if you, yeah, if you forget the past or you erase the past, you're doomed to repeat it. Mm. So, like, you know, use these things as teaching moments and realize, okay, we don't make movies like this. We don't do this in movies anymore because of X, Y, Z, or yeah. whatever. You know, and well, we're fortunate that that we could make movies like this when they were made because they were they were needed. Again, Blazing Saddles was definitely needed as a critique on society. We just couldn't. I don't know that we could necessarily do that today. Just I don't think that we could. We needed it when it came out. Yeah, I, I'm I'm actually in the middle of listening to the Mel Brooks memoir, oh. and I haven't gotten to the point where he gets into the making of that movie. Mm -hmm. I, I do highly recommend it, and if you're you know, if you're an audiobook loving person, he narrates it, and wow, it's it's excellent. Oh yes, it, it's oh, hilarious. I totally well. If he's narrating it, then fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. I mm. he he's it's it's great. I highly recommend it. I'm like I don't know an hour or two into it, 
Mm. It's like 15 hours of audio. That might be my next book. That's that's an awesome recommendation. Yeah. On a side note before we cut off, uh, there's a movie that recently came out called Don't Look Up. And I think when we talk about the manipulation of people in light of, of recent events, what we consider to be entertaining, it's it's a very interesting movie. I wouldn't go so far as to say a great movie, although it has a lot of actors. And it does drill home at a number of points, almost on the verge of being preachy. But the parts that are funny in that movie aren't necessarily intended humor. The parts that are funny in that movie are the moments of ridiculousness where you go, oh, my God, that's already happened. We've already seen people do this. The only difference is, is that it isn't, a, it isn't a comet coming at us. It was something else. But we, we're, it's like they're literally plucking out of recent history. You know, social media and and divisiveness and, you know, you know, politics and business all wrapped around trying to exploit just the simple fact that the end of the world is coming. Right. And uh, if you've not seen this movie, it's on HBO right now and it is well freely watchable on HBO. I'm sure it'll be available somewhere else soon but i recommend you watch it because it's just it's just poignant and interesting kind of speaks to the, the shit that we've been talking about yeah yeah I, it was a fun trip to Shermer, sherman schumer whatever <laughs> you want <laughs> this is chris and this is aaron and we'll catch you on the next episode we'll get to the good part thanks see you